Welcome to the Your Message Received podcast. And now, taking your message to the finish line, your host, John Duffin. Hey folks, John Duffin here with Duffin Media. Welcome back to another episode of Your Message Received. Your Message Received is the place, the home, the platform to help you find your best, most true, authentic business voice. Hell, find your best, most true, authentic voice. Get what you want, find what you need, improve your results, become your best authentic self. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by bringing people who have actually walked the walk. Now, folks, we're thrilled that you're back. We're thrilled that you keep finding us on Spotify and iHeartMedia and Apple Podcasts and anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as the video version. It is now on YouTube. We love watch, listen, do both. Keep liking, subscribing, sharing, telling your family, all that sort of thing. We're thrilled that you're here. And today, I get to bring a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, somebody I've admired for years. And when I talk about walking the walk, no joke, I think if you're in the Philadelphia area, you would be hard pressed to not know our guest. You'd be even more hard pressed to have not been at an event that our guest has been at, been honored at, shared at, hosted However, uh, Greg DeShield's world is expanding a lot further out than the city of Philadelphia, and it always has. So from Tourism Diversity Matters, Executive Director Greg DeShields is here. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, and I appreciate your introduction. I need to look at how many miles I have on travel and uh, <laughs> what my parking reimbursement is for all those events that I go to in Philly. <laughs> I I was focused. No kid, it, it's we'll get we will get to all that. I was lucky because I got reacquainted with Greg. Literally, it was a matter of a couple weeks ago, and. <laughs> You're going to hear me read off what is has to be a partial list of accolades, awards, titles, because nobody has the time. It's no lack of respect, Greg, but honest to God, we would fill the entire episode of Velvet's just reading off accolades and honors. But here's one that I love. I got to see Greg and his husband, Tom, at the city and state Pride Power 100 event, where I got to be with Greg and watch him as he became one of the Pride Power 100 uh, certified winners. And so I meant what I said. It's like, Greg, right away, I'm going to ask you, um, how do you sustain the energy (laughs) to be virtually everywhere all the time? I promise you we'll walk backwards. But it's the very first thing I think about is how are you able to be, because I call that in service, to be in service with so many organizations in front of so many different events and always be on? How do you do it? Well, you definitely need like a strong coordinator who can help manage your calendar to make (laughs) sure that you're not over committing yourself. But, you know, I have to say, I've always had a very authentic Mm -hmm. connection to the communities that are really affiliated or in some way or another engaged with Mm -hmm. the work that I do. 
Mm -hmm. whether it was in the role that I'm in now or when I was at the Convention Visitors Bureau, yeah. when I was at Temple University, like through all the different organizations, building relationships was always key to the success of the organization, has always contributed um, to the network that I've built. And, you know, I went through Leadership Philadelphia, and one of the things that Liz Dow had always said is that you've got to be a connector. And you can mm -hmm. be a connector when you're out and about and you're shaking hands and you realize that, you know, these aren't just people who are passing through your lives. These are people who are really ultimately connected in your life. So for me, it is without any doubt, one of the key fundamentals to the success of business, but ultimately it for me is one of the most enjoyable parts of the work that I do. I think it shows too. Folks, I'm just going to give you a few. Now, Greg already tipped off the fact he is the executive director of Tourism Diversity Matters coming from the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. But here's just a partial list. These are a lot of the organizations that I have either met or know Greg about. Not you talked about the Temple University and teaching at Temple University. Folks, Greg would be a qualified tourism hospitality. We'll get to the food part afterwards, but a qualified tourism and hospitality educator. The independence business Alliance, and I always mispronounce it, and I'm part of it, like the Center City Business Association, the Greater Philadelphia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. I am not prioritizing and going out of order. These are just a few. The Asian American Hotel Owners Association, the American Hotel Lodging Association, the Multicultural and Diversity Advisory Council. That is just a handful of some of the organizations that are in play. Greg, obviously diversity matters to you. I feel like that, that that's part of your brand and we'll get to that. Has it always mattered to you? Like growing up, you're a Philly guy. So it has yeah. it always mattered? You know, I've always valued the idea of diversity and what it brings to you. Um, my father was, you know, military and we traveled domestically and internationally. And in most cases, we were the only black family that were at whatever it was that we went to. Mm -hmm. But because of that, I learned to appreciate the perspectives that we bring to the table and other people bring to the table. And, you know, over the years, it certainly evolved, you know, whether it was um, things that were connected to the civil rights movement or multiculturalism or as it evolved through diversity. But you know, I've certainly grown in my understanding and my appreciation of it and see it as a big contributor to overall success, success of society, success of business. So for me, I've just found it to be, you know, once again, one of those cornerstones to who I am uh, as a person. Mm, I love that. So you just said a moment ago, that, that as you're saying, that often your, your, your dad had the credentials uh, mm -hmm. being in the, in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And you would be the only black family at a lot of those events. Mm -hmm. Did it feel weird? Did it feel just business as usual? What was that like for you when you were attending? You know, um, I would say throughout early on, it may have seemed a little weird, but I've always felt that if I was in the room that I had to own the seat. I always felt that if I was in the room, I had to be there because there was a reason beyond mm -hmm. my skin color that maybe brought me into that space. As I got older, I really began to appreciate what it means to be in those kind of rooms and what you can do when you're in those kind of rooms. And part of that is maybe the way that my parents were brought us up. Maybe I didn't understand it fully as I was younger, but I never felt like being in a room where I was the only black person was something that I didn't feel 
that I belonged. I didn't feel like I couldn't contribute or I didn't feel like I, you know, were at the same level of contribution as others. And to that degree, you know, I look back on my parents who are both deceased mm -hmm. very fondly because that level of confidence that they built in me is something that just matured like a fine wine as I got older and older. But a lot of it was because they wanted us to always be able to stand our own two feet, especially when we were the only people of color in those rooms. Mm. So Greg, the, one of the whole points of this show is I call it the arc to authenticity. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best, coolest things I get to, to, ex to experience is others sharing what got them from point A to point Z or B or whatever point you happen to be at. You said in an article a couple of years ago, and I loved it, that a great way of introduction is introducing your family. And I just thought it was a really classy way to say it. So talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about your mom and your dad, as you're saying they both deceased, but I'd love to hear a little bit more. I actually love to tell that story because- I want to hear it. <laughs> uh, I was introduced to a Native American person who said, you know, you should always honor those who came before you. So. I always love to say that I am the son to both Dolores and James mm -hmm. and, or Preston, who is my dad. Mm -hmm. So interestingly enough, I look at the characteristics of both of them and that is truly who I am as a person. So my mom was always a believer in that there was something better. She always could see that there was something to aspire to and something to achieve in life. You know, her phrase was always, my ship will come in. And we always wanted that ship to come in. But okay. she was always that person who had that aspiration for something better. And that is so woven inside of my DNA. And wow. my father was a boxer. And one of the things that I loved about my father, and this was when he was in high school, but a boxer is somebody who will continue to fight even after their body says no, and psychologically that power. And for me, I am 100% like that mm -hmm. as it relates to how I pursued my career. I will continue to fight because I know that there's something better, right? Take the two of them and I combine them. And for me, I always feel like they're with me because if it is a networking event and I'm trying to find a way to look exactly the way I should and and, and the fact that if I have to speak in front of 500 people, that mm -hmm. I have the strength and the power to be able to do it. And I always know that my ability to deliver in that is because of both of them. So Dolores or Preston or James, depending upon who knew my dad, mm -hmm. were really the ones who made me who I am. And I, I love that every day. So the fighter and the one who always saw the next step, that Absolutely. could always aspire to theirs well too. Yeah. So... Take me back. You went, you're a graduate of Johnson and Wales University. And I, 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 well, listen, I, that is just impressive to me in general. Uh, my world growing up was, I was more of seeing like the, the big five colleges in Philadelphia and stuff. So I love the fact that the, uh, maybe that's the aspirer with, with your mom that had you looking outwards in terms of the hospitality realm. What got you to Rhode Island? So it was funny. I always wanted to be a writer and I was in here in Philly. I was in the KYW New Studies program. Yep. Uh, and I went there for a semester and thought, wow, I'm gonna mm -hmm. be a budding journalist. And uh, there was a black writer who told mm -hmm. me, you know, back during the seventies, even though I was writing that, you know, there's a whole different life that you will experience as a black journalist. And I just didn't want that. I felt there was something different. I was still interested in writing, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember I went back to uh, I went to Omni High School in Philadelphia. I went oh, to my counselor. Uh, I, <laughs> I went to my counselor, Mr. Schneider, mm -hmm. and I said to him, you know, I don't know if this writing thing is for me. And he asked me, if you don't write, what did you want to do? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, what are the things that you like? And the only thing I could come back with an answer is that I like to eat. And when I told him that, he said, oh, you should go into culinary. You should go to Johnson and Wales. And I had no idea what Johnson and Wales was. But I'll tell you, I went to Rhode Island. I'd never been to Rhode Island. It was, without any doubt, something that I felt so proud that I could find my way to go to a small state up in New England. My father got me a ticket because he worked for um, Conrail or Amtrak. And what got me about Johnson and Wales is the personal attention that they gave me as a student. They picked me up at the train station um, but seriously, all the I'm sorry. That's that's impressive. They it picked was you very up impressive. Wow. It was very well. Listen, it was a 19, it was a 1976 Ford Squire with wood. Who cares? Wood uh, was... <laughs> but they treated me with such respect. Mm -hmm. And even after I was finished my college tour, every correspondence I got, my name was handwritten. I had been getting other opportunities to go to other schools. And it was always a printed label. But Johnson & Wales was the only one that wrote handwritten notes. I still have a lot of the brochures that they gave me. So it was that personal connection that I had to the school. And then, of course, once I got there, it was what better place to be. You're between Boston and New York. It was you could drink at, at, at 18. <laughs> so that was pretty good, too. And I just. I fell in love with New England. I still mm. love New England. I had all the most fabulous professors from the 1970s and the 1980s who were in the industry. And mm. it was without a doubt, I think the perfect launch for someone like me who found their way. But I will admit that I continue to write. I was the editor of our uh, newspaper for two years and editor mm. of our yearbook for two years. And I won. Uh, the best in uh, publication excellence for four years in a row at the school. So I enjoyed that. So let me ask you, that's pretty awesome. What were the types of things you were writing about? What you know, mattered to I, you? <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe you asked me that. So the one article that I wrote, which got me in the biggest trouble, was there was oh, a big fight. There was a, <laughs> there was a big fight about birth control. Okay. And I felt that would be a cover article for my newspaper. So there was a um, a church that was near our campus. So I went yeah. over and I interviewed a nun about it. And believe it or not, she was not an see. advocate. Um. She, but wait, she was an advocate for women's rights. This was 1977. Wow. And wow. it was she wow. was like wow. advocating that women should have this choice. So we wrote this article. I put it on the cover of our newsletter. Mm -hmm. I did not run it through the university to get it approved or anything. So I was sitting in class and the dean asked me to come over and he wanted to find out why I put this article on, on mm -hmm. the cover. And then later the Boston Globe found out about it and then they wrote an article about it. And then I was at a conference with all editors from newspapers in the New England area. And you know there was an article about um, how the um, newspaper, well, I'm sorry, the, the school wanted to suppress the newspaper and they wanted to restrict what was in it. And it became a really big thing. So that's how I became the editor of the yearbook because oh, they felt that God. I was maybe a little bit too rogue for the newspaper, but I was equally rogue for the yearbook. <laughs> So, well, what were you doing in the yearbook that was so rogue? I'm thinking so, of pictures and, and interests and <laughs> degrees so, and majors. I can't 
can't believe so. I can't believe you're asking me these two because those are like the best two stories when I was in college. Thank so you. I, I want to know. When I went to the yearbook, mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't going to be putting out a weekly newspaper. And you're putting a book together that's not going to be released until almost a year later. Mm -hmm. So I had some pretty wild uh, photographers who worked for me. So mm -hmm. I always asked them to give me some really interesting pictures. So there were a bunch of really crazy guys who did really bizarre things who were in the swim club. So there was a photographer who took them and they were mooning the people who were swimming. So they <laughs> took a picture of it and I felt it was a little too racy. So we did like the special effect and we put it on page like 79. And it wasn't until like just prior to graduation that people actually looked at the book and they saw it and it was the most funniest thing. But it still <laughs> is in the yearbook. It's a great photo. <laughs> so gutsy even at a young age. Yeah, have to be. Right? I mean, and you have to be. Well, here's what I'm going to say. No, you don't. I admire people that are gutsy in a young age. That's for me. It was like I, I was always so worried about like what you thought. And hell, I didn't come out of the closet until I was 40. And I can laugh about it now, but it wasn't funny then. I truly admire when people take stands early, even if it is something like page 79 of the swim team mooning. That's taking a stand or finding a nun it in 19 give me the year again 19 1977 that was my second year running it spectacular to me that every dynamic of that story so do you think that came from your parents or is that you was that you always um i certainly was able to you know kind of execute on mm -hmm. the idea but you have to have confidence to do something like that. Right, you know, right. you really have to feel that if I have to respond to it, that I can certainly, um, you know, explain and respond to it. You know, the fact that, you know, they wanted to expel me over it. I also had to be smart mm -hmm. enough to know that there was power in newspapers. So when yeah. I had a conversation mm -hmm. at the University of um, uh, Connecticut, around how you know they wanted to censor a newspaper that mm -hmm. other newspapers would pick that up. And that once the Boston Globe picked up that as a story, that there was leverage behind it. But I, I also had to think of what are my options? What are my resources around taking mm -hmm. a bold step like that? So, but I definitely felt as though the day instilled me with confidence mm -hmm. in order to make decisions like that. Greg, I'm thinking as you're speaking, one of the things that I'm thinking about is this. You're about, as it like used in the timeline, about to embark in a hospitality-led career. And, and, and I, I look at hospitality as almost like making sure people get what they want. Yeah. Uh, and if you... I grew up, I, I was in sales for a lot of years. And before I worked up any guts to be true to me, I equated that to being a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that you're able to walk this line, even at a young age of, of being able to be in a field of hospitality and or whatever, where you give the people what they want and you, you know, and you're still able to take stands. And as you said, you have to be so. How are you able to walk that, like that line to me, I find really interesting because I would feel like the field itself, hospitality in general, as I said, is a field that, that is, makes somebody happy. Mm -hmm. 
You so know? you know the hospitality, the hospitality industry, and I, you know, credit it to um, one of my professors, Peter Van Cleet, and he always had a statement. He said, in our industry, we are, you know, providing, you know, one of the most perishable commodities. We basically provide people with memories, and that's mm -hmm. it. No mm -hmm. one says, I stayed at the Ritz-Carlton in Waikiki, and look what I got. Maybe they stole the towels, but I mean, <laughs> that, that experience yeah. is something that we provide people. So mm -hmm. I've always felt in our industry that we do mm -hmm. have a responsibility to provide people mm -hmm. with the most incredible experience mm -hmm. that they'll think about 20 years from now, mm -hmm. whether Google sends them the image or if their memory allows for them to think about it, that as an industry, that is paramount to what we do. And because of that and how I've evolved in my career, I think I've always, you know, maintained a priority or focus or commitment to what the those who deliver service and those who receive service and what that means in terms of the success of our industry. I noticed that for like Rob, that you've been a manager in the hospitality industry, companies like Hyatt and Omni and Sheraton and Corman and and, and like the elite group. What were some of the things that, like some of the takeaways as you were ascending in terms of professionally, what were some of the takeaways that you feel like when you talked about, and I want you to go back to what you just said a second ago, the difference between, and can you repeat it for me so I don't just talk over it, that line that you're saying between those being serving and those being served. I love that. Right. I mean, those are really paramount in our business because mm -hmm you know, we are driven by those who represent our organization, provide that direct customer service. And then the other is those guests, those guests who come into our, our establishments, mm -hmm. save money, gone into debt, whatever it is, right. that we're able to deliver on the promise of what we, we offer them. You know, as I think back in all the different organizations that I've worked for, mm -hmm. they've all contributed significantly in terms of my ability to aspire in, in, my, in, in my career. You know, I went through a management training program when I came out of Hyatt, and I think that that was an important step for me mm -hmm. because it allowed for me to understand there is a corporate structure to this industry. Um, representing a company like Hyatt was an absolutely amazing mm -hmm. way to launch your career. Um, later, when I left for Hyatt, I went to work for Omni, which was a quality brand that yeah. offered me incredible ways of looking at their business and then uh, later working for Sheridan, both on their franchise and their corporate side, helped mm -hmm. me to just understand the nuances of the business. And so for me, it was always evolving and understanding the business. But I will say that there became a point in my career where I had to look beyond the operational side of what we do and mm -hmm. realize that there are people who are making decisions about how hospitality exists in a particular location. And through the environments of an academic institution like Temple and then later mm -hmm. working for other organizations, I was able to maybe step away from what was the operational purview and have a better sense of the industry and of the business itself. So when you went to the Philadelphia Convention and Visitor Bureau and you are challenged in a sense with, with being the consummate cheerleader for Philadelphia, but you've got to also be able to position in, in the most strategic ways possible why organizations, why we're going to fill up the convention center, why we've got to fill these hotel rooms. What was it like for you to take on that responsibility in regard? Because I feel like that is such like a pressure-packed role. 
Well, <laughs> how did you do it? Well, I will tell you this from the very beginning. It was a yeah. dream job. I wanted that job for over 13 years. So I am not at all going to say, oh, it landed in my lap. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, before me, there was Ramona Risco Benson who led that division, right. Tanya Hall, who I tell everybody, you know, she's my sister from another mother. And mm -hmm. I served on the board for 13 years. So I had been exposed to, you know, uh, Tom Muldoon, who was an absolute consummate professional and leading that right. organization. Mm -hmm. And then later I had the incredible opportunity um, through being hired by Jack Ferguson for my dream to come true. Like it was no question that I wanted this job, like with every ounce of who I was. And what was important for me though, is I had been with the organization as a board member for 13 years. And I learned the importance of the division, what it meant to the customers, what it meant to the diverse businesses in Philadelphia, what mm -hmm. it meant to diverse leaders in Philadelphia, what it meant to um, the um, city government, like it was an important integral part of the perception of Philadelphia as a multicultural destination. Right. And when I came to that position, we were evolving to move beyond multiculturalism to diversity. And it was me who loved and always wanted to be the executive director of the Multicultural mm -hmm. Affairs Congress who had to kind of put that name to rest and then create that evolution to PHL diversity. And what was important was I always stayed true and committed to the history of the organization while charting the path for the future. And although Jack was only with us for a while, I had the honor to work with Julie Coker. And oh. she was an amazing person because Julie encouraged mm -hmm. for me to be a innovative, creative thinker and be a risk taper. It was in her DNA and I certainly had no problem with adapting to it. So that time there was one of personal fulfillment. I had a passion for it. It was a job that I always wanted. And because they gave me such a, uh, a, a platform of evolution and innovation, uh, I would definitely say it was my dream job. And I mm. loved it. Can I ask you a terribly dumb question, but I'll risk sure. it. What would you describe as the, well, how would you define the difference between multicultural and diversity? Well, multicultural really deals more with the ethnicity and the cultural identification of communities. Yeah, but okay. then when you, we, for us, we wanted to expand beyond that because we represented, you know, this race and eth ethnic perspective of Philadelphia, right. and we wanted a more diverse point of view. So for us, we expanded to include women and LGBTQ. And Got that it. was a very different. So that's how we really mm -hmm. expanded. But don't get me wrong, because that mm -hmm. also includes people with disabilities. And there are a variety of others, There's 19 different dimensions of diversity. But that's where we landed on back in 2017. No, that 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 helps me because that, that's one of the things where I didn't. That's just my own ignorance, not quite understanding the difference. And, and, and one of the things that I think about what I was so impressed by, and I, and I alluded to it in the very beginning, was that the different cultures, the different ethnicities, being you being a part of the Greater Philadelphia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, you being a part of a board member of IBA, you being a part of the Asian American Hotel Owners uh, Association, that I feel like it, it was one of those things where before I went to work with Univision Communications, I went to work with Univision in 2006. Mm -hmm. I didn't know those organizations existed. Mm -hmm. 
And it's like, shame on me. You know what I mean? It was like, they were there and they were doing good things. And I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't exactly kill myself to seek them out. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like as you being somewhat of a trailblazer in, in that regard, that you're literally seeking or these organizations are finding mm-hmm. you. Um, why did it matter so much to you personally that you were that you needed to be affiliated with all of them? So we talk a lot about two important things, cultural diversity, that you yeah. put yourself in a study of all of these different cultures and that you then become more educated. And then ultimately that I became culturally competent, that I could mm-hmm. sit at the table mm-hmm and enjoy an Asian Chinese celebration and that I'm gonna enjoy every one of the 19, 16, 17 courses, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm going to be very much comfortable with the cultural norms that they have. You know, I always loved, and I still am on the board for the Hispanic Chamber. Um, yeah. I should point out though, because of my commitment to the Latin or in Philadelphia Hispanic Latino community, Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt like they identified me as, you know, Dominican. And that was a way of saying he looks Dominican, so he could mm-hmm. be on our board. And mm-hmm. then I learned a lot about the Dominicans and I had a great appreciation for that. But that was a way of me becoming much more culturally competent uh, because of my exposure, as well as my sense of diversity. And I think that's one mm-hmm. of the reasons why I love the idea that I was able and still seek to have that ability to be at the table with Mm -hmm. others so that I'm able to become much more knowledgeable, insightful, competent of those communities. And you can move forward in so many ways because of that level of of, um, education that you get as a result of it. Um, But each time I've worked with or been representative on any of these boards or committees, uh, I've always sounded to be very rewarded. Mm. I'm smiling because I can remember, I, when I first went to Univision, it was probably, oh, it was at least 60 days where I felt very much like fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really did. I had come from Tribune and I was with an independent uh, television station prior. And I really felt lost. Mm-hmm. Like it was more that sense of like, I was recruited to go over and blah, blah, blah. None of that matters, but it was more, it's like, what do they want? Why? what am I going to bring here? You know, and all that stuff. And here's, there's three words that somebody shared. And that's why I started to smile. And it was one of my colleagues that I grew to love at Univision. Her name's Sarah Hassan. And she married a Dutchman. She refers to herself as the blonde Nordic Latino. <laughs> and, and she said to me, the words are welcome, the invited, welcome, invite, and include. And I'll never forget the feeling. She said, just give it a little while. She said, you'll Mm -hmm. see that it's going to take hold. And and I stayed with Univision for 12 and a half years. And it was one of the best business Mm -hmm. experiences I ever had. And mostly because it just felt so damn good. Mm -hmm. It just felt so damn good. Um, I my my Espanol is so eh. But the fact of the matter is I was always included after that like trial period, you know, that it was, I was always included and people made me feel great. And there was nothing like a feeling of being welcomed, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. 
success is a whole other part of it, but it's just that sense of being welcomed. The mm -hmm. dinners that we were at, you know, like going to the, like the dinners and, and the cuisines that you talked about with the Asian cuisine, or, you know, that being a part of the 16 to 18 courses, the foods, the vibe, the music, the energy, mm -hmm. it was so different than mm -hmm. what I had encountered. And it was the coolest feeling. And one of the things that I think about now is that I force myself to make certain that I'm not in this linear box of, you know, just go here and just do that. And I just got back, like, it's been a while, but I was a Tierra Colombiana in Philadelphia. Folks, if you're listening in Philadelphia, you would know about Tierra Colombiana, or you should. Um, and I just walked past Mixto the other day in, and part of, like, part of the Pride celebration and I remember just, I kept looking in the windows thinking it's the most inclusive place I've ever seen. So folks, the biggest thing for me, and that's why I keep asking Greg this, what feels like the same question, is that sense of challenge yourself to try other cuisines, cultures, people, be in it, because it just, it changed my world. And, and, and Greg, for you, as I said, it's like, it, it, it's so fun to see you out and about because the fact of the matter is I've seen you at a number of events and there's never an event where you look like you're out of place. You look like you should be there. You know what I mean? Front and center. What's it like, like when you take on leadership roles? So you've evolved you were talking about speaking in front of five you know i mean you've commanded some pretty big stages being honored giving speeches when you're speaking do you typically speak more from the heart or do you typically speak more like like prepared to what is like when you're speaking to an audience often how do you typically go about like what's the process for you well you know it's certainly content is everything so right. we through the work that we do at tourism diversity matters mm -hmm. you know we developed our signature sessions um and you know i've been fortunate to be an adjunct professor so mm -hmm. you know how you kind of navigate your conversation. Um, I will certainly speak to the content, but there are portions of it where you can speak, you know, um, you know, from your heart about that. And I think that audiences connect with that authenticity mm -hmm. of being able to, you know, provide it and then share some uh, aspects of it that allows for it to be more humanistic in the way that they hear you and how they connect with you. Um, but it's always for me, you know, driven with content. If you got really solid content, you know the content really well, mm -hmm. um, then you can certainly add those areas of personal um, insight or personal feelings that allows for you to get greater um, credibility with the audience. Do you recall, I'm just thinking from, from I'll, I'll go first on the larger side. And then I absolutely want to walk backwards a little bit in terms of tourism mm -hmm. diversity matters. But I, like I said, I'm not forwards, I'm backwards, forwards, sorry. Um, that in terms of a speech or a presentation you gave that you felt like had impact or just made you feel great overall. Mm -hmm. um, can And you probably have had way more than one, but is there any that jumps to you? So... The one that for me will ever, uh, forever mean the most mm -hmm. to me is when I moved into the role as the executive director of PHL Diversity. Mm 
-hmm. And, you know, the organization had gone through some reorganization. Mm -hmm. You know, we had added new um, communities. Some people didn't necessarily think that we should. So, you know, but the MAC luncheon, the Multicultural Affairs luncheon was always the event. Like you always (laughs) went to it. So on a high end, maybe they had 400, 450 people. But Mm -hmm. to me, it was always big. And I always envisioned that that was a measure of success. So I moved into the role in April and we had a luncheon planned in October and we're rebranding and we're adding new people. And we went through all of this stuff, a little bit of turmoil here and there. But I remember when um, I went out on that stage at the Marriott and we had 650 people. And I remember looking at a shot that somebody took from the back of the room and I wish my parents would have been alive to see it because right, right, two huge IMAG screens mm-hmm. with my image and I'm standing in the middle at a podium and I'm delivering opening remarks. And for me, that will forever be probably one of what I've always felt was the best verification of achieving your dreams in your career because mm-hmm. I had gone to that lunch for so many years and I always saw these amazing people speak. Mm-hmm. And when I look at that image, it was on the cover of Aldea. And I just remember that one for me was like one of the most powerful images. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had to speak in front of some fabulous, very large groups since then. But, you know, if you ever say like, what was that watershed moment that le- that led you believe like you could be in mm-hmm. front of, that was it by far, hands down. That's what an year amazing was that? remember- photo. Tell me uh, that would have been the first year I got to the bureau. So I, I- left. Temple in 2011, no, 2015, 2015. Beautiful, beautiful. I feel like I, I'm pretty certain I was at that event too. Oh my God. Uh, that that was was the, the, I'm pretty certain it was, and, and yeah. it was the grand scale. Folks, you're, Greg, you're so right. That was the must go to, and there were a lot of must go to events in Philadelphia, but that absolutely was right there. Mm-hmm. Greg, what I'm finding, I was saying, taking a walking backwards, what I am thinking about is a very significant walk forward, but I was intentionally asking about grand scales because I loved, so folks, you weren't privy to the conversation that we got to have, Greg and I, a couple of weeks ago with Greg's husband in regards to at City and State and right prior to the event, we're downstairs and you're talking to me about tourism diversity matters. And I remember when you started to explain to me what you were doing, where you were traveling to, and who you were speaking to, it was at that moment that I remember thinking, oh, I have to get him on the show. Uh, and, and because I, one of the things you hear people will say is you really want to make an impact, do it on a smaller scale, you know, and, and all that stuff. So talk to talk to us about tourism diversity matters what got you to do it how it's unfolded i definitely want it i definitely want to hear more well you know it's funny i tell everybody we're one of those covid silver lining stories so you know i was very happy and very excited about the work i was doing at the convention visitors bureau and then covid Mm -hmm. came along and as a result of covid uh, i unfortunately became amongst the casualties that a lot of people experience and became part-time. And that was um, just a month or two before the murder of George Floyd. And our president of Tourism Diversity Matters, Mike Gamble, leads an executive search firm that's uh, located in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. 
-hmm. And, you know, Mike is one of those guys. He was on the board for the Multicultural Affairs Congress. He worked at the Bureau. But Mike has a passion about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he felt that this was really an opportunity for our industry to create an organization that would be that resource for the entire industry. Right. Um, he was able to be joined by Brian Stevens, who is an influential person in the uh, meetings and events industry leading mm -hmm. Conference Direct. And then our very own Greg Karen from the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau right. came mm -hmm. on as one of the partners. And then Elliot Ferguson, who's the president of uh, Destination DC. And at the time he was chair mm -hmm. of US Travel, he came on as our inaugural board chair. And we had said we were gonna create an organization that would be the go-to for our industry and that we will be ultimately forever sustainable with a 365 day a year focus around DEI. And in our industry, there are a lot of organizations that do it and we work collaboratively with everyone, but we want to be that go-to source for strategies, resources, and tactics. Mm -hmm. And we have a board of leaders of just about every organization in our industry, which certainly allows for us to stay grounded. We are a greater good organization, so we don't charge for what we do, but we do want to be resourceful and I tell everybody in my first year, I was in Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Oklahoma, and Kalispell, Montana, and places that you wouldn't expect someone to want to talk about diversity. But mm -hmm. there are a lot of really good people who live in those places who still believe and have always believed that the more diversity that they can bring to their destination, the better the opportunities are. So we have a talent pipeline. We have an apprentice program. We operate across the country. We do a number of uh, keynotes around the subject. We do assessments of organizations which have been just about uh, in all corners of our country. And uh, we work collaboratively with Temple University and San Diego State around research. But you know, for me, one of the things, as you think of your career, and obviously a lot of people, you know, ultimately think of what kind of legacy can they leave and what can they do for the industry? You know, the work that we're doing at TDM is really meant to be that constant um, focus around DEI, and it will be an organization that will weather the storm of challenges that we encounter today and challenges that we encounter in the future, because it's crucially important for the diversity of the staff, and it's crucially important to our diverse customers. And because it is a business strategy, it allows for organizations that evolve as DEI evolve to make better decisions to lead their organization to success. So I'm thrilled to be in this role. You know, they give me such creative opportunity, such as the event that we're doing in Philadelphia on October 23rd and 24th, yep. Collective Experience. We'll mm -hmm. bring over 500 leaders of DEI to what other place than Philadelphia to talk about, you know, the future and the current challenges that we face and how we can come up with solutions that provide leaders and influencers to go back and make a difference in their organization. So I absolutely am in love with the work that I do. And as much as I loved working at the Convention and Visitors Bureau, I really love working at uh, Tourism Diversity Matters. All right, so here's your, uh, here's of Oklahoma, Montana, Nebraska, Missouri. I'll stay with those four. Which one was your favorite? What was what was your favorite of the of those four? So it's two. I loved uh, being in uh, Nebraska because the speed limit is 85 miles an hour. The Ooh. roads are flat. And I was driving this really like souped up sports car. And that was just, it was a hoot to do that. But Kalispell, Montana is absolutely beautiful. Everything they talk about Montana, 
you know, the scenery, you know, the, uh, the atmosphere is just absolutely amazing. And um, I went to dinner and I had like the best steak dinner you could ever imagine. So mm. you're in Montana, of course, you're going to get fantastic yeah. food. You're but the people right. were amazing. There was no branded stores. It was all like independent, you know, just looking at the mountains and the snow. And you're in mm -hmm. Kalispell, which is just a really cute town. It, um, by far, Kalispell was the most memorable one. I took a ton of pictures. Um, you know, um, it, it's, a, it's an amazing place. If you have a chance, I would definitely mm -hmm. say one should go there. That's that's kind of the thing. I I, I think in like you talk about COVID silver linings mm -hmm. that you it's not just who you get to speak to, but where and and mm -hmm. I think for me I find this exhilarating mm -hmm. in in the sense that I'm stealing your line from another article that it's more fulfilling to impact a small number of people in a big way as small changes have the power to make a huge difference. So first, I think of the geography in terms of places that I may never have thought to go in my lifetime, you know, never. And just having this conversation, it's this reminder that it's like, okay, these people, it's not everybody needs diversity obviously that sounds kind of mm. redundant but but the fact it, it it's more of the case mm. where you think will they receive it you mm. know and you're saying i met some amazing i met amazing people out there is it exhilarating or surprising when you're going to these smaller places for you well i've learned never to prejudge where i'm invited to speak because right. they're asking you to be there for a reason and i always right. want to deliver but when I was in Nebraska, I was speaking at the Nebraska State Tourism um, uh, Conference. You know, it's put on by the governor's office and right. tourism. And, you know, I was the keynote for their lunch and I did a presentation mm. about diversity. And within my presentation, I had a rainbow flag. And I think I may have, you know, mentioned the LGBTQ community. So mm. I went to a breakout session where we talked about the language of diversity, but there was a guy who came over who lives not too far from where the event took place and he produces their pride. And he says, I've come to this conference for the last 15 years. He says, I've never seen a rainbow flag. And he says, no one's ever talked about uh, LGBTQ. And he said, for me, it was the most fulfilling experience in mm -hmm. my entire life that you were able to put a face on mm -hmm. our community. And I was speechless because here I am like in Nebraska and someone is like, you know, really saying that your voice matters. And, and that statement about speaking to sometimes a small community, that yeah. has a big impact. You know, that motivated him to weather the storm even more, you know, to know that like there's people that hear him and people who see him. So that was a fantastic experience. So I very much believe in that when you are invited to these small um, communities, that those are probably amongst the best opportunities to speak because they genuinely do want to hear from you and gain your insights and uh, guidance. What are some of like speaking of your insights? What in term? Oh, and maybe we're gonna we're gonna channel your mom in terms of aspiring yeah. and, and, and next. What would you like with this current responsibility that you're shouldering? What would you like to be able to impact, or how would you like to be able to impact? five-year questions are tough and and but even if over the next year or so what would you like to convey accomplish communicate 
All right. So obviously from a business perspective, that our yeah. conference is a big success. Yeah. But more importantly, is for leaders to understand that you don't fix diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And that leaders have to be patient and implement it as a business strategy in any as would be any business strategy. And that they have to build in a sense of measurable outcomes to determine <clears throat> whether this worked or not. But understanding that you have to resource it, you have to give it time to be integrated in your organization. But mm-hmm. that takes time. You know, our first project um, now is maybe in its second year. So for us, we can see some of what we made recommendations and how it's beginning to be normalized within their organization. But some leaders want immediate return on that investment or they mm-hmm. want to see immediate um, um, changes. But culture change is not overnight. It takes time. So I would, what I would always want is for leaders to think more strategically about the work that they do and provide the appropriate amount of resources and time for it to take effect in a positive way to change your organization. So those leaders appropriating the correct amount of resources and time time or what have you, what would you recommend uh, to the entrepreneurs that are listening here, business leaders, small steps, a small step or two that you could take in your organization that would enable you to accomplish those goals, like uh, using your time well, using your resources well? So, you know, the one that I always recommend, because mm-hmm. diversity is something that you can do in small, medium, and large. There yeah. are a lot of other bells and whistles that you can get into when you get bigger. But if it was one thing that I would say, small, medium, and large, embrace supplier diversity. Make sure that the economic um, capabilities that you have are something that can be distributed across those diverse communities of which yeah. you live. So, of course, you want to think about, you know, can I do a diversity statement or can I, you know, establish an employee resource group? All of that stuff is great. Mm -hmm. But if you are a business and you buy coffee or you purchase advertising or you um, need shuttle service, you Mm -hmm. know, there are diverse businesses that can deliver that. And I would encourage you that if you want to immediately and measurably get involved with diversity, equity, and inclusion, start with the economics of it. Create business access. Make sure that you're inviting diverse businesses to bid on contracts, to provide you products and services. And what you in turn find is that you will then become even that much more connected to those communities. And then on the other side of how you operate your business, when you do your annual report, you should be able to show the distribution of dollars that you've shared by way of procuring products and services from diverse communities. So I would say without any doubt, the first step should be look at your um, supplier diversity efforts and make sure that they are inclusive and bring on as many diverse businesses as possible. I love that. Uh, You've influenced an awful lot of people. And I'm always, when I speak to an influencer, I always am curious, who has influenced you so no question, Valerie Ferguson. I tell everyone that's that a fast is, answer. Like no, Valerie <laughs> is Valerie is at the end of the day when it comes yeah. to like who in this industry did I want to emulate? It was right. her. When I was a management trainee at mm-hmm. Hyatt Hotels in Atlanta back in 1980, she was a front desk manager. And you know, listen, I love my mom and all the other black women sure. I know. 
But, you know, Valerie was a front office manager in a 950-room hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, and she was beautiful. She was smart. She was just like, when you saw her, you're just like, oh, my God, I just want to be her. And Valerie has been like my North Star forever. And I remember when she left from the Hyatt Regency Atlanta because she went on to have a career with Ritz-Carlton and Lowe's and everything else, what right. stuck in my mind is how she said, the next time I walk back in this hotel, I'm going to be general manager. And it was maybe, I don't know, five to seven years later, when she came back to that hotel, it for me was like, I'm sure for her, it was an amazing feeling. But for me, it was even that much more. It was a, it was a confirmation of what I could do in this business. But mm. I tell everyone, that, and I have no shame in how often I, I call her out. I'll be at a big dinner and people will say, do you have anything you want to say about someone? I'm like, Valerie Ferguson. She's an amazing <laughs> young woman uh, who has been a trailblazer. And she has set the path for so many people of color in this industry. Mm. And I'm amongst those who, whenever anyone asks me, she is the first go-to person that I will always acknowledge. God, I love that. I love that. Couple more personal questions because you've sure. been really generous. You talked about when you were driving around in Nebraska with the flat roads and the 85 mile an hour speed limit or whatever, and you're tooling around in some hot sports car. You're a car guy. Uh, what is it? I did I just see I've seen several social media photos <laughs> lately, and it seemed like teal blue was the color of record. Actually, it's electric blue. Thank you. And thanks for the <laughs> correction. I'll my, accept. When you talk to my car dealer, I am with Eleni Dal a, mm -hmm. a, a just car crazy. You know, I have a mm -hmm. subscription to Motor Trend on my television and my magazine oh. and everything. Oh. Uh, I love, love, love cars. I love sports cars. I miss mm -hmm. V8, but uh, I probably have one of the most butch cars I've ever had um, before now. Um, I'm one step below the uh, Cadillac Blackwing, but I have a Cadillac V and GT5, uh, and it is fabulous. It growls, which I love, and it's got like more gadgets than you can imagine. Um, it's just, I absolutely love it. And, you know, I just love cars and I've had fabulous cars, you know, throughout my life. But this one is definitely one of the top ones that I've had. I love this, and, and and since obviously you can't do this all by yourself, your husband Tom grabbed himself new wheels. Uh, <laughs> we added a lot to the economy. <laughs> do you have to buy two cars together at, at the same time, or do you take turns, or whenever the lease runs our out? Our leases, our leases are synchronized now, so we both got ours just about days apart. But mm -hmm. for the last uh, two leases, they've been getting closer to the timing. And uh, I'm assuming that uh, either our insurance company or dealers know that we're both mm -hmm. up for our up renew of our lease. But uh, yeah, he's similar to me. I think he's had about as many as I've had. So, so do the neighbors get weird when they hear your car growling? I'm I'm just curious. I don't want to sound like the cranky old man, but you've got a car that growls. <laughs> well, do they so, get weird or like it? <laughs> so what I found out is this car has a stealth mode. So you can actually hit stealth that will turn what down happens. any kind of noise. And it will uh, instead um, pipe the uh, the noise in the car. But it's actually a button that says stealth mode. So that you and can- it shoots it in directly stealth. at you. It, well, it, it puts it into the interior of the car because some of that sound is naturally 
funneled in to kind of give you that feel. So <laughs> no, my neighbors, my neighbors are more concerned with what kind of crazy color is he going to have? And this is crazy. <laughs> so. I love that. I love that. So you've been together with Tom. Did I do my math right? 28 years, 29 years? Uh, it, no, 31 years. It'll be oh 32. My God. Oh my God. 30. I hate messing up math. Um, <laughs> yeah. What would you think? Tom would say about you in regards to what draws him to you? And I'll ask you the same question about Tom. Well, I mean, you know, I am the eternal optimist. And when, mm. you know, I met Tom, I think that was one of the things that he admires. And he does say that about me. He says, you've always just been very optimistic. And, you know, we all go through life and we all have our ups and downs. And I've always tried mm. to find, you know, the higher road. So um, I would say, he would probably say that I'm just very optimistic and he likes that about me. What do you see? What What is it about Tom? It, 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 all these years later. It's a smile. From the very first minute I saw him, it was a smile. And every day, even with his beard now, but it has always been a smile. And then second to his smile is his eyes. Like, you know, it, I go to butter whenever that is the case, whether Aww. either two of them, but it first was a smile. When I first saw his smile, I just was so incredibly taken back by that. And, um, you know, every day I see it and, and the, the, what it means to you, how it makes you feel is just, you know, absolutely amazing. So, but I always say it's a smile. Absolutely. I gotta tell you, first of all, that's beautiful. Uh, the way you said the way that makes you feel Greg DeShields, the way that you make me feel that it, it's such a powerful conversation. And, and as I said, it, it, it's, it really means a lot when somebody is authentic, uh, as you shows up and, and, and shows the way. So I'm really grateful that you made the time today. It means the world to me. And I thank you thank from you. the bottom of my heart. What is the best way? Look, I've got, like I said, again, we've got, oh, oh, oh. Um, what we will do is also for the conference, mm -hmm. we will have the link in regards to ticket sales on this podcast link. So folks, as you're watching and or listening, you're going to see a link in regards to the conference itself. Give me the dates one more time and, and we'll get right. So the conference is uh, October 23rd and mm -hmm. 24th. It's a real short conference. We start at 11 a.m. on the 23rd and we end at 1.30 on the 24th and we'll be at the Hilton Pence Landing in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, PA. So folks, if you're local watching or listening to this, get there for those two days. And Greg, your links will be up as well. What's the best way to find you? Uh, the best way to find me is certainly on LinkedIn, uh, but I'm also present on um, Facebook and Twitter, but mm -hmm. I would say the first go-to one for most is on LinkedIn. And folks, you're going to see the LinkedIn profile is right here as well, too. Greg DeShields, thank you so much again, man. You've made it great for me, and I truly appreciate awesome. you. Thank you. I've absolutely enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And folks, you've just heard another episode of Your Message Received. We talk about this arc of authenticity. See? Told you, told you. Uh, thank you so much joining us tuning in watching listening liking subscribing tell your folks tell your friends i'm john duffin with duffin media thanks so much for making the time for us have a great rest of the day be good and we'll talk soon Bye. and now making its way across the finish line your message received has been a production of duffin media